perilous business of E.T.'s, when all said and done, you'll probably discover this in your next life, is probably the biggest question we have in the world before us. Which is a big statement to make. But that's really where it starts. Nevertheless, this question has definitely been batted to the side over the last number of decades. And this is for very understandable reasons because if any of you have had ET related experiences or anything like it, it is very difficult to connect that experience with our ordinary lives, with ordinary Wednesdays. What goes on, our defined reality, it is very much difficult, difficult to connect that in. For example, people who have serious close encounters quite often have it scrubbed from their memory for a number of years or the whole of their life. But this is also a choice, and here we come to one of the questions about the more metaphysical question which came up, which is that our capacity to relate to this kind of thing really depends on how able and willing we are to shift our consciousness, to shift ourselves into a different kind of state from our ordinary functional day-to-day state. And in fact this is the first answer to the question in the title about what to do if an ET drops into your garden is really the biggest challenge you would be faced with if such a thing happened would be to shift your state in seconds or as quickly as possible to gear up for the situation. But on the other hand, if the queen dropped into your back garden, you'd have to shift your state as well to deal with her. You'd have to change your language. Your posture would probably shift. you'd, You'd adjust all sorts of things, quite genuinely, in your demeanor in order to equalize, to meet with the queen. Or if you've had a chimpanzee who suddenly dropped in. So there, this is not necessarily too different from um, meeting someone you otherwise wouldn't usually meet. So this business about ETs has also been batted further to the side by recent events of the last few years. In particular, we're all really supposed to be wandering around worrying about wars and nasty things like that. One of the great things about wars really is that it is that they are so gross, vibrationally speaking, that the finer aspects of human existence just get sidelined as if they no longer exist. And This has happened, for example, with environmental issues on the world stage over the last few years, is that really, even though we are on the edge of enormous environmental issues and and, uh, 
and the crisis, it's nevertheless the case that this is perhaps less of a concern now than it was, say, 15 years ago. And it's not that the situation has improved. And so, there's been, in recent years, particularly since 9-11, a, an extra kind of suppression or sidelining of issues such as ET issues, or crop circle issues as well. So someone mentioned about the relationship between ETs and crop circles, and why, why are we now hearing about crop circles, whereas previously we were hearing about ETs? Well, one of the answers to that is that it's roughly the same question. Although I'm not saying that crop circles are made by ETs. But it's roughly the same question, and I'll elucidate this a little bit, because what we're, what we're talking about here really is different realities. And while there are ETs who you could meet, and if you clap them on the shoulder, your hand would meet some resistance, You'd, you'd feel them as a physical being. It would feel funny, but you'd feel them as a physical being. While that's the case, and you can knock on the side of a what, they, what you'd call a, a nuts and bolts type craft, we're still talking about different levels of reality where we really have to bend our concepts a lot in order to grasp what, what really is the case here. But this is not fundamentally different from psychic kinds of experiences you might have or spiritually, spiritual kinds of experiences you might have. And so when you've been sitting there by a waterfall and letting yourself really relax and then suddenly out of the side of the, your eye you see an elf. It's the same kind of question. Or if you are in with a healer, and there you are, you know, you're out on your back and you're getting worked over by a healer, and you might float off and have an experience which is memorable, really special. It's not dissimilar to that kind of thing. Or you might have been present when someone was getting born or getting dead which are roughly the same kinds of things. They're just transit in and transit out. And similarly, there's a very deeply moving experience that goes with that, particularly, for example, when a good friend of yours or a relative or someone has died. And particularly if they've died for reasons which might be a little difficult to comprehend. You're left with something which you can't explain, but you can feel it. You can't put into words what you're really feeling, what you think about the, about the whole situation, but nevertheless, there is a very, very real feeling which can stay with you for a long time. It can be a feeling of mystery, or a feeling of blessing, or a feeling of... difficult even to put a word on that. It's also not dissimilar to the kinds of things that happen when we get really major events in the world. 9-11 was, was one of the latest classic ones. Death of Princess Di was another one. The fall of the wall was another one. The meltdown at Chernobyl was another one. 
Now, what's special about these is that these things take place in a matter of days or a matter of hours. 9-11 took a few hours. But it's indelibly imprinted on, on everyone's consciousness. You can remember those images and that feeling that was going on at that time. And the remarkable thing about that, you see, was one of the, the whoever designed that whole business, whoever it was, what they were doing there was they, they were trying to provide us with an experience which was beyond our understanding of what is possible. They were trying to blow some fuses for us. And it's those fuse-blowing experiences that we have, whether it's collective ones or whether it's personal ones, which are very, very memorable and it's very difficult to put a, a clear definition on what it is or to put it into words or to explain it to other people. It, it clatters horribly on the cobbles and it just seems to make no sense or it can be embarrassing to try to express it or, or, or something like that. You might have read, for example, some psychic channelings and it, it, you know, it starts with blessings on you, my dears, you know, and all this kind of thing, and you think, oh, yuck. You know, but actually, in the moment of, of a channeling experience, it kind of fits in, that kind of thing. So, what we're talking about here, therefore, is paranormal experiences, things which are really outside our normal frame of reference but it's not just a, a mental kind of experience it can be emotional it, it can be a very very profound kind of thing that activates very profound feelings inside us again like say the birth or the death of a person there's something more that goes on in one of those experiences you can feel the angels around during times like that doors get opened your own your own consciousness filters get sort of opened up a bit and you, you become receptive to certain kinds of things which you wouldn't otherwise normally do when you're driving your car and on an ordinary day. Yeah. The remarkable thing about these kinds of experiences also is they can be quite short, but they can have an immense effect on our lives. That 20 minutes, that 3 minutes, that 5 days can have as much effect as the next seven years in terms of its experiential impact that it can have on us. And this is one of the funny things about close encounters is that frequently they're quite short experiences although at the time they can seem to be long quite often like many kinds of cosmic experiences or altered states or meditations or something, you thought you were there for 20 minutes but in fact it was 3 hours or vice versa, you thought you were there for 3 hours but in fact it was 15 minutes and so they're very like those kinds of things but they can have a very very major impact <clears throat> for me the, the close encounter which I had I, I was quite young, I was 22 and I was in mid Wales, in Rat the old county of Radnorshire, and I was out on a dark, starry night, a very still night, with a friend. It, uh, it was a kind of a warm November, and we were walking up in the hills, and just taking a walk after a big dinner or something like that, and having a rather philosophical chat. And we were going towards a hill fort, which was called Castle Hill in Radnorshire, 
and we were about half a mile from it, and my friend said, are you seeing what I'm seeing? And I was about to say the same thing to her. And what we were seeing was a classic, what you'd call lenticular shape UFO, yeah, like a lentil with a bump in the middle. And it was a bright, bright light, and all of the colours of the spectrum were mixed into it, but it was very difficult to figure out those colours. It looked as if it was spinning, but you couldn't see what direction it was spinning in. It, it was twinkling and glistening. And it was about half a mile away, and very, very distinct, and it must have been about 150 feet wide to be that kind of size. And we just stood there, and we started talking about it. Um, are you sure you're You know, all the usual things. Are you sure you... We turned around, came back, we punched each other, you know, made sure we were both still seeing the thing. And so we just decided to watch, just watch. And as soon as we, we had decided that, what happened was seven little craft came out, came out of the bottom and started going around. And then... You know the you know the dance that flies do in the middle of the room, round the light in the middle of the room. There's an amazing dance, and if you watch it closely, it's got these amazing curves and an amazing um, shape to to the whole dance. It's quite a remarkable thing, and it was a bit like that. These these little craft, which in my estimate would be 15 to 25 feet across, something like that, were doing this dance, and then suddenly they all just went whoop and they all went off to different places and we had this distinct feeling they were on a mission somewhere they were doing something and the big craft just sat there sparkling and that must have, must have been for about five minutes or so but it went on for ages and again we talked a bit but we were becoming increasingly dumbfounded by the whole thing or even dumbfounded isn't the right word but just stilled by the whole thing and then these craft came back. And about three of them went in, and then there were four of them, and one of them went off, and they were doing a few things for a while. And then they eventually all went into the craft, and then the craft started rising like this, and it just sat for a while. And then there was something else started coming behind it, and suddenly our craft started... Well, it looked as if it was going towards it, but it was difficult to tell, but it was getting smaller... And then suddenly both of them just went, doink! They blipped out. And the whole experience was about 20 to 25 minutes. And as I say, I was quite young at the time, and my first reaction to that was, now I know what the word blessing means. That was my first thought. I, I understood from that moment what blessing was. You know, and it's a very, very... Um, it's the old hidden hands business. It's a very, very special kind of experience which you can get at times. Just that feeling that you have been honoured to be there and somehow, perhaps it was meant for you or whatever, but we didn't feel that they were there for us. We felt we were there for them in some way. Or those, but there was an interaction between us and we could tell because when we had occasional thoughts there would be something like the the craft would just move like that or it would flash a little bit or something like that there would be 
an uncanny acknowledgement of our thoughts. You know? Now, the thing was, without this time, I was completely unprepared. I'd heard about UFOs and stuff, <clears throat> but I hadn't read anything about them. I wasn't either pro or anti, it was just some term that there was. And of course, in the late 60s and early 70s, people were intellectually more open than we are now, in a strange sort of way. There was a bit more of a why not kind of attitude going around then. Whereas now the attitude is, of course not. But we might budge an inch if, if you push us hard enough, is the attitude nowadays. So, so that was what, what got me into all this. And um, I've had various other experiences since, the main one being that I had the privilege of writing a, a book on behalf of some beings, which I wouldn't call ETs, I'd, for want of a better word I'd call them cosmic beings or something like that, but they're related to ETs and they work with ETs. And this was a bunch of beings called the Council of Nine. And if you root around on, in people's bookshelves or in second-hand stores or Badger Nigel or something like that, you'll get it, you'll find a copy of the book. It's out of print. It's called The Only Planet of Choice. And although I'm biased, obviously, I would recommend reading it if you're interested in this, in this, uh, subject because it definitely will, from the horse's mouth, enlighten you on many questions. And one of the things I loved about that book actually was you didn't have to agree with it at all. But in some way, it had an uncanny way of adding to everyone's experience, wherever they were coming from, whatever their own experience was, it had a way of adding to their understanding of things in, in a remarkable way. So, so that was the other thing. And even then, there was an amazing thing, because I, I lived in Sweden in the, in the 1970s, and uh, for a while I was living uh, out in the forest, and when you live in the countryside in Sweden, the next house is ten miles. You know, it's not like here, at all. And it's very quiet on the human front. I had a, an interesting time there, I was, I was on my own looking after my kids, and a good friend of mine rang up and he said, Paldon, I've got to come and see you now. And I said, all right. This guy was going to drive 250 kilometers to do so, but that's what they do there. And so he comes along and he had this photocopy of a book. And he said, Paldon, you've just got to read this. And I said, all right. <laughs> and so I read it. And it was the first book about the Council of Nine. And that was called The Briefing for the Landing on Planet Earth. And it came out in 1976 or 7. And when I read it, I was just bowled over. And I just said, I've got to meet these people. A lot of people do this. I've just got to meet these people. And completely forgot about it after that. And 12 years later, they rang up. You know, and, and I was asked, would I, would I do this book for them? So anyway, those have been the two major experiences. But, who are they? Uh, these particular beings are beings who are, you could say, part of the management structure of the universe. Are they earth beings? No. Who help us? I mean, they're the earth beings who are supposed to be helping us now. Not these particular beings I was talking about. These are beings from not on earth. 
Yes, but the earth beings are, are only earth beings in the sense that they help the earth people. I just wonder right. if they were the spiritual earth beings. They Probably. are some. Yes. Some. The, the, basically, there are a lot. Yes. Thank you. So, you could say some, but they're very much not of earth no. as well. So, the Council of Nine, does it mean there are nine? There are nine beings, and when they are attuned to one another, they become one. Yes. 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 And they, they were very vague about their position and status and things, but one thing they used to talk about was that their particular duty or responsibility was to maintain balance levels in the universe. That was their specific brief. Maintain the balance, of the balance levels, yes. Just mm. making sure the universe balanced up in all places. You know, I guess it's a bit like an air traffic controller and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of that, that kind of that kind of uh, activity. That's just that's a matter of perception. Actually, it's a matter of perception. These are, they are unbalanced according to our current way of seeing things, certainly, and certainly according to the preferences of people like ourselves. But one of the wonderful, deeper truths in the universe is that everything is always in balance. There is always a compensation. Uh, I've been writing a book, for example, called Healing the Hurts of Nations. It's geopolitics, really. Deep-level geopolitics. One of the things I've been talking about in there is, you know, tyrants are wonderful people because they shake us up and they enlighten us as to the what, what is really important around here. People currently rant and rave about the United States. The problem is not the United States, even though the United States is problematic. The problem is the rest of the world. The problem is the so-called international community and the fact that it is not a community and is not operating in a, in a functioning way. So, coming back to... And, and this is a good example, actually, of, of the extent to which we are obliged to really bend and turn inside out a lot of our concepts when we're encountering beings such as ETs or spiritual beings or what have you, we really have to get out of our box and boxes. Now there was a lovely, there's a lovely ET, uh, there are some channelings and I don't recommend many channelings actually, a lot of, a lot of channeling I'm afraid in my judgment, is not a very great standard or very enlightening. But there are some which are. And if you happen upon any books by a chap called Daryl Anker, uh, who channels a being called Bashar, this is great stuff, because this, this being, Bashar, is a really common or garden ET. He's not the lord and master of the universe, or the, the head of the fleet, or anything like this. He's a He's a space vehicle driver and he's got his job to do, you know. And, but he's tremendously insightful. And one of the things Bashar used to go on about when people used to uh, talk to him was 
listen, the trouble with you lot is that when we show ourselves to you, you go gaga. You won't even say hello. You know, you wet your pants, you run inside for your camera, you go stum, you don't believe what's happening to you, and then, when we've gone away, you want us to come back. Do they speak yeah. English? <laughs> How do you understand them? Right. How do you understand ETs? You will understand them, is how you understand them. Because, essentially, they don't have these funny things called mouths that we have. They don't have the same physical beingness as we have. They have the ability to communicate direct. And so, basically, there is... I've never heard problems of understanding although I have heard problems of comprehension, if you can get the difference. Yeah. Because there are some pretty incomprehensible things. Uh, for example, one of the forms of close encounter is the inner experience of ETs. And you can meet ETs that are very weird, such as spiders, or... Um, How's about this? A spider that emanates such great love that you can't compute it. You know, because we always identify spiders. Our concept is spiders, ah, threat, or weird, or something, you know, not, not good. But how's about a spider that loves you to bits? That is a real contradiction. And it can hit you on a very, very deep level. I had a, a very profound experience with some ETs that I can only call robots and it was as if they were basically a bit like Art Deco Bakelite robots, if you can imagine it. You know, remember old radios from the 40s, for example, and that particular kind of shape to them and the, the particular feel to them. They were a bit like that, you know, with round eyes and, and nicely sculpted and everything, but very much like Bakelite robots. And these guys were so friendly and loving and interesting, completely opposite to my concept of what a Bakelite robot might be. It's very, very strange. And so one of the things, hang on, one of the things here is we really do have to be willing to stretch and suspend our ordinary judgments on things. Right? Sorry, I was going to say just wondering where you met Ah, where I met them, in here. It's, I've been giving a lot of attention to these things for the last 25 years or so, and the more attention you give to these kinds of things, the more it happens. General psychic rule. The more attention you give to your intuitive um, inner life, and the more of yourself you give to it, the more it works for you. It's an unfortunate rule. It's, it's a, it's a skeptic, it's an anti-skeptic device to, to, to stop people messing around. But one of the interesting things also, and this, this is where a lot of the stuff that you will find about ETs and UFOs and things is a bit strange. And that is this, at least in my experience, ET experiences I've had, I've found to be very emotionally uh, full 
experiences. Not just a mental thing at all. It's, it's been a very, very deep thing. Particularly, I think, and I, I had to allow myself to feel this feeling. It was particularly a feeling of, at last I've found my friends again. And that is a, it's a gut-ripping experience actually. It's a gut-ripping one, that one. Because, and, and this I would say is not particularly unique to me. I'd suggest actually that anyone who is willing to open themselves to such an experience will experience something of that order. A feeling of recognition. A feeling of also being recognized. And a feeling of deep memory. Now here come the crop circles. The interesting thing about crop formations is that when, when, you, when you look at the designs of the crop formations, the pictures of them, the remarkable thing is that most of these things are recognizable shapes. They're, they're something which you've kind of seen before, even if you've never seen it before. It's funny. And with a, f- a very few exceptions, every single one of the designs of the crop formations is totally unique and has not been done before in human culture. Although there are elements which have been done before, all the circles, triangles, shapes, designs, you know, they're all, or many of them, are the kinds of designs we can relate to. But if you search around in the cultural material, search around the museums and search around all sorts of different cultures, with very, very few exceptions, you won't see one of those designs. And this is part of that same experience. It's a feeling of recognition of, I know that, but you've never seen it before. Now, the lady over here was asking about crop formations and their relationship with ETs. Or actually you were asking, why is it we were hearing about ETs and now we're hearing about crop formations? Well, that's partially because since about 1990 or the mid-1990s, interest in ETs has been declining somewhat, especially from the excesses from what happened in the United States in the 1990s with all the business about abductions and cattle mutilations and underground ET cities and all this kind of stuff, which was, much of which was over the top. Not all, but much of which was over the top. And so that turned people off the whole thing. But there's something else as well, and that is, they realized that we weren't getting it. And like any decent, intelligent being, they realized, this is a waste of time trying to talk to these guys like this by providing them with close encounters. You know? Because they edit it too, too much. Um, I used to run a, a program when I was in Sweden. It was called New Dimensions and it was on the community radio station while it was shut down for the night. So we went from midnight to six o'clock in the morning. A six hour long radio program. And we used to do all these different programs on different healing and nuclear power and ETs and all this kind of thing. And we, we did these programs about ETs. And we kept people phoning in 
And they'd be crying on the end of the phone and they'd say, I haven't been able to talk to anyone about this for the last five years. Can I come into the studio right now? Or they'd be on the phone and they'd be telling us for an hour on the radio, you know, about their experiences and things. And it's, it's difficult to live with this kind of thing. And so, I'd suggest to you that part of the answer to your question is, they decided they'd do something different. And there's something wonderful about crop formations, because you can walk into them, and they'll, until the harvest has come along, they'll still be there tomorrow. And you can get out your tape measure, and your video camera, and your Geiger counter, and you can do whatever form of, of measuring you want to prove that it exists. You can sit inside them, you can stand on your head, you can meditate, you can eat your sandwiches, you can do all sorts of things inside a crop formation, and it will still be there, and the experience will last longer than ten minutes. It's wonderful. And some of them, they plop down by the sides of motorways and the A303 as well. So people are kind of obliged to look at them. You know, they put them on a lovely bit of hill where the motorway is just going straight towards it and then curves. So everyone just has to see it. You've seen one of those? You know, just the placing of some of these is just brilliant. Just brilliant. A lot of, there are some similarities also to many ancient sites, because the placing of many ancient sites is just amazing. And if you just moved a hundred feet to the left, it wouldn't be right anymore. So it's similar with a lot of, a lot of crop formations. Now the thing about crop formations is, it's not about the pattern, it's not about the corn, it's about the empty space that's created inside them. Here's another conceptual problem. We don't tend to think in terms of empty space being significant. We look at the stuff. We, we want to look at the corn and we want to photograph the shape and all this kind of thing. But it, it, well, this is my personal opinion and experience, but this is my recommendation to you to look at it, at it this way too. It's the empty space which matters. And what's important about the empty space? It's an energy field. And what's important about that energy field? We're being given the gift of being able to go to another world while being on our own world. And if you want some sort of evidence of that, go to a crop formation, look around, sit down, think about it for a while, and then go into meditation or just lie down and let yourself drift off and give yourself that do, do, do that let yourself drift off don't be timed and I guarantee you you'll have a profound experience of some sort absolutely guaranteed it will cost you just your petrol and your sandwiches yeah, absolutely free and it could be one of the more profound experiences you've had. Definitely on a par with meeting the Dalai Lama. No, no mean little, little thing, this. I really do, seriously, recommend it. You just need to do it once. Give it a day. Go, choose your company carefully. And just go and enter in 
let yourself go and see what happens and don't be afraid of anything you will have a good experience you'll feel it when you come out you'll feel that your genes have been jiggled you'll feel better you'll feel clearer inside yourself you'll probably have resolved without knowing it you'll probably have resolved some quite important questions for yourself that might have been bugging you and it will be worth the, worth the experience now this is virtually the same thing as a close encounter and we have this opportunity we're very blessed in Britain we get them here just up the road I won't say anything more than that because really if you are fascinated by this question and if you ever wished to have a close encounter you've got that there is an opportunity you just have to give yourself to it a bit just give it a day and it's alright you will be able to go back to work on Monday morning if that's what's important now however crop circles are not made by ETs it's pretty clear now that that's the case although there have been ET phenomena in connection with crop formations there have been funny craft there have been things going on and there have been phenomena which are like what happened in the ET realm but they're also like what happened in with, with for example ancient sites things that go bang on in the night and profound nature experiences you might have had they're not fundamentally different from that there's a difference of, there is a difference of flavor but they're not fundamentally different from the experience you might have with a 1200 year old oak tree if you're in the right state if you give yourself to that experience but there is a difference of flavor and one of the things you'll find in the crop formations is it'll be a recognizable experience but it's something entirely new it is not like what is available here on our planet and we have some pretty good experiences available here on our planet you know you can get the northern lights you can get humpback whales you can get atlantic breakers you can have ancient trees you can have avebury you know we, we have some pretty good experiences available to us but it's not like any of those but it's similar it's entirely new and different it's got more to do with the future than the past but there's something remembered to it too and so if you want to have a close encounter this is what's available and you might not see an ET craft but you will get something guarantee it if you'll just let yourself go into the experience. It's very interesting that um, you say it's both something future and something past. Because William Steiner says that because we've had all these different lives from eons past, if we see a jewel, like an emerald or something green, we have a memory, which we don't recognize, of the angel that made it, or the spiritual being that made that. And so you see, these might be very old memories. Yes, this is a way in which we see things. 
uh, particularly because we're so involved in the ins and outs of, of ordinary life. But past and future aren't exactly like what we think they are. And so you can perceive something which both, it, which evokes both the past and the future in the same moment, in a sense. There is also a part of ourselves which is not inside time. You could call it our soul. It is not in past, present or future, it is in a much more timeless zone. And there's a point where, if you are looking at things from a reincarnational viewpoint, we are living all of our lives at the same time. There is a, there is a point within us, deep within us, which we don't contact very often, but we're living them all at the same time. And to some extent, what people would call past life memory, or also premonition of, from the future, is not really like that. It's more that part of ourselves which is in the timeless zone, suddenly creating a linkage with, a, with another part of ourselves in the timeless zone, so that you can be in the megalithic age, or in 5,000 years AD, and you're both communicating in the now, for a split second. Well, actually, if you go into that, it's a long time. It's a bit like our dreams. With our, our dreams, usually, even though dreams can appear to take a long time, they can have duration in them, actually, they go really fast. Much, much faster than ordinary daily experience much, much faster, even if you might be going through quite a complex sequence of shots in the dream. So, what we're talking about here, therefore, is reality starting to crack and bend. As we're going along and deconstructing various kinds of notions which we take to be given, and, and to have shape and to and everyone agrees on this, don't we? We don't. There, there are, this is not the same stuff. And, and our concepts are very, very limited, really. So, with ETs, for example, there are all sorts of different kinds of ETs, actually. There are a few groupings, you could say. A few groupings. One is, we'll clear the imaginary one straight away. Some of them are imaginary. They are products, as Carl Jung said, they are products of our consciousness. They are projections of consciousness which we might experience for, it can sometimes be, good reasons. Just like you might experience your guardian angel. Something like that. But there is an element in the ET business where these are imaginary but I don't like using that word. Okay? There's a double bind to this. That is, cosmic beings who don't have bodies sometimes can project a body to you to give you something to relate to. So there's a double twist to this. It, there can, in some cases, be a deliberate, benign, in a way, trick 
in order to give you something to grasp onto, to relate to. This often happens in the psychic world, you know, that, uh, that if you go inside yourself, you might experience people in, in cloaks with, with long hair and grace-filled wisdom or something like that. You know, they, they will take on that kind of Dumbledore or Gandalf kind of shape because they are an archetype. And that archetype gives us a certain bundle of feelings, of, deep, of, of quite profound understandings of things. And so, there's a double twist to this. Part of it might be a projection of our own consciousness. Part of it also can be a projection or a, or a hologram thrown out from them because basically they have no shape. They have no form to give us that we will recognize and so they show us a shape. This isn't too out of the ordinary. This is all in the, all in the area of the ordinary paranormal. It's the same stuff as ghosts, essentially. So that's that one. Then there are ETs of worlds not too unlike our own. There can be physical worlds and they are in astronomical places. Uh, for example, there was a crop formation two seasons ago. If you remember the face and the code that came down near Chilbolton Radio Telescope in Hampshire, you will remember the, the, the face. It's that one which was the dot. It was a dot raster pattern. And there was this lurking face that you couldn't quite detect, but it was definitely there. It came through. Well, on the other one, which the other formation which matched that was a whole set of code which was decipherable and it was an answer to signals sent out in the 1970s by a radio telescope. Kind of, anybody out there, kinds of signals. And it was an answer back. Now, these beings who are answering back identified their whereabouts exactly in an astronomically recognizable place and we could figure out that it was the third planet out, I think it was, from a particular star, which we can identify, which was something like, I forget how many light years away, but quite a significant distance away. So, there are beings who are of planets. However, they might have what we might call supernatural abilities. An ability to float through the air, to disappear, reappear, to change their shape, to levitate us off the ground, to speak directly mind to mind, to send a beam to us which changes our lives, all sorts of things like that. But hang on a minute, we can do that too, it's just that we don't. So this isn't actually out of the ordinary. But humans on earth can levitate. We can communicate to the other side of the world directly mind to mind. We can heal. We can overcome the laws of physics ourselves. It's just that normally we don't. That's the only real difference. But we have those abilities that are available to us. And everyone in this room has experienced this at some time in their lives. Even if it's forgotten. Everyone's experienced some aspect of their own supernormality. 
So, and you might have, those of you who have read E.T. literature, you'll probably have heard of beings like greys and Pleiadians and people like this, and most of these are beings of this kind that I'm talking about. They are relative locals in our galaxy, in our neck of the woods, and in our dimensional frequencies, close to our own. Relative neighbours, as it goes. Then there's another bunch who can materialise if they so choose, but it's not their natural state. It's a bit like getting in a car or something like that. Being in a car is not our natural state, but we can do it, and it does have certain functions. And so, and in fact, if you were an ET flying over planet Earth, and you'd look down at these cars, you'd wonder, if it was your first time, you'd wonder, are these the beings, or are the beings hidden somewhere? Because frequently when someone rattles at you on their horn, you know, you can't see inside who's driving. So, there are beings who can assume a form if necessary. But otherwise, they would be in the form of what in our concepts you'd call light. They, they have what we might call light bodies, which we can perceive if we're in a developed state. And especially at night. Two o'clock in the morning is the time. You know, it's when our own sensitivities and our ultraviolet perception, perception and things like that is most finally attuned. Any time after midnight, just, you know, that's when the energy starts rising for this kind of thing. Then there are beings who can't and won't manifest as well. They have to, if they want to communicate with us, they have to drop imagery or information into our psyche in some way, in a way that we will log, you know, that we'll log on to, that we will comprehend. And that's a pretty difficult thing, because they're talking to us all the time. And we're saying, oh, I had a funny dream last night, can't remember it, you know, or these funny voices I get in my head, you know, or doctor, what am I going to do? You know, so we, we have very, we have a lot of tricks for denying and editing out information and imagery and feelings that we receive. Tricky one. And some of this is actually not just because we need to wake up. Some of it is a necessary protection mechanism because if you were aware of this kind of stuff, it could make your life very difficult while you're driving along the M3. And so, so part of this is a protection device in order to help you digest stuff that you're, that you're given. Then there's indirect contact as well. And this is where beings, such as these beings I've worked with, the Council of Nine come in, because they can't communicate with us too directly that the, the cosmological distance is too big. The voltage is too high. They don't even have concepts like ours. You see, our ideas, these things we call ideas, 
even if we think them privately to ourselves, they are based upon the forms of communication that we have developed because our form of communication is verbal. It's this resonation and this that goes on, you know. And we form these, these sounds which we've trained ourselves to understand. You are understanding the sounds that I'm resonating out to you. And you've been educated into that and you can sound back at me and I've been educated into recognizing you. Men, omiatala po svenska, for example, doska do inte recognera vajaseer. So I'm speaking a different language there that I hope none of you understand. Yes, we do. We you do? All right. Iskaha, you're the fail, you know. Yeah, okay, well, fine. That was Swedish. So, but you, but you see, then I was using concepts which you, apart from these two ladies here, have not been educated to understand. And you could chatter back to me in Welsh, and I would only pick up a few words. And so this is a, this is a, this business of communication is an interesting melding and equalizing thing. And this is where we come to our back garden again, and what we would do if we met up with an ET in our back garden late at night, is the challenge is, it's this melding business, this, in, in computers they call it handshaking. It's, in a way it's to do with sticking out a hand and starting a process of, you could say protocols. This is what you asked. Protocols whereby you start communicating with someone. Now, for example, you will have experienced this if you had met, say, someone fresh out of China who doesn't speak a word of English. And they walk into your living room and you're about to give them tea. And you think, how am I going to do this? And you would find ways, you'd start bridging, you'd start finding the points of contact between you and the, and the other being. And you'd start finding things which you both recognize. It gets tricky, you know, where in some parts of the world shaking your head means yes. So there can be some problems here, you know. But nevertheless, this, this is the, the beginning of the problem. So, if it just so happens that you're peering out of your back window at half past one in the morning and something does happen in your back garden, right? the first thing I would say is try to be open to this even if it's short-circuiting all of the fuses. The next thing is in your thoughts, but you can say it too, say hello. This is really, really important. It's probably, if, it, if there's one thing you remember from this evening, it's this one. Say hello. This includes some newborn babies and other beings, all sorts of different kinds. Acknowledge that you recognize them and that you are experiencing them. Right? Acknowledge that you can see and you recognize they're there. This is really, really important. Really, really important, actually. Any kind of any kind of acknowledgement is fine. 
you know, because what they're doing here is they're not necessarily picking up on the language, they're picking up on the thought that's coming behind that language. And the, it's not just a word, hello, it's a feeling. It's, when you say hello, you are actually, something is opening up inside you to the other person, the other being. And then the next thing to do once you've said hello is be open. Be willing to have something happen inside your consciousness. Be willing to receive something. And the chances are it'll be crystal clear. Crystal clear. Even if it's not necessarily in words, but it sometimes might squeeze itself into words. Now, the next thing is that usually these encounters don't become very complicated. They're just trying to make contact and perhaps to turn a key in your own psyche. That's the main objective in these kinds of things. So, not much more will happen necessarily, but if it does, you will know what to do if you're open to it. Now, this isn't too crazy. If you remember, when Princess Di died, the whole nation went into an altered state, and by rights, people should have been having car crashes, and the whole nation should have gone into chaos. By rights. Because the nation fell apart. It became a hopeless case for a, for a number of days. Actually, crime rates plummeted, hospital admission rates went down, all car accidents went down, all the traffic suddenly got decent, the air cleared up, all sorts of things happened. There's another thing that happened too. They have, in some scientific laboratories, they have randomness trackers. They have a computer which is continually generating random numbers and then they shove the numbers over to another computer, and another computer analyzes them to see what the patterns are. And the coherence, the pattern coherence, will rise and fall. And the fascinating thing is that before one of these major events, such as the death of Princess Di or 9-11, the coherence level in these randomness trackers rises 12 hours before the event. And here, we're coming into this past and future problem. And also, we all have personal experience of, you know, having been through the Diana thing in particular, we all have personal experience of what life is like when a whole nation goes into an altered state. And actually, it's perfectly manageable. And everyone knew what to do even when they were stepping outside their known frame of reference. For example, one of the, 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 uh, the abiding images I have of that time was a, a lovely picture of a gentleman in a bowler hat, pinstripe suit, brolly briefcase, and a punk with a razor blade coming out of his ear. And they were standing there in this picture and having, you could see they were having a really interesting conversation. And that was that business of all the rules getting broken. Everything getting bent and, and changed. You know? And it's this kind of thing 
which is one of the other things we must do if we meet someone in our back garden like this. And this includes after the event, because once it's finished and it's gone away, you're then left with the digestion process, which goes on really for the whole of the rest of your life. And that can be the tricky bit. And the unfortunate thing, the difficult thing, is that most people will not want to hear it, even your husband or wife, even your best friends, even the vicar, even the doctor, will not want to hear about it, or, even worse, they might call into question your sanity or your grasp on things. And that can be very, very troubling. Very troubling indeed. It's a very difficult thing for, for people to have. Even amongst ET buffs themselves it can be difficult. People often ask, why are ETs interested in planet Earth and what's going on? And there are two main reasons for this. The first is the easy one. The next one is quite a long and involved one, really. The first one is that since the 1940s in particular, and particularly since the explosion of the first atom bomb, we have been ad advertising our presence very, very loudly indeed throughout the universe. And this is because basically at atomic explosions resonate into the area beyond form and beyond time and space. These are, in physics they talk about short-lived radionuclides which last only a split second and which go, which penetrate matter and these kinds of things. Well, these are traces of this same kind of thing. In other words, when we explode an atom bomb on planet Earth, it is heard or felt throughout the universe, because this is an unusual thing. Another thing is that during the, around about the same time, the 1940s, and increasing ever since, we've started sending out radio waves and an enormous jangle of them, now, planet Earth currently pumps out something like 350 times the amount of radio waves of our sun. And what's happened also is that if you were an astronomer somewhere else in the universe and listening out to things, you'd suddenly notice this tremendously strong broadcasting of radio signals that suddenly starts in one particular place, which is our planet, which is when radio was invented. And so we've been advertising our presence tremendously strongly, which has brought in quite a lot of interested attention. Uh, some of the material that comes from ETs, they, they sometimes say, well, we just came to take a look, basically. We came to find out what the, basically what the noise was all about. Um, but there are other reasons for visiting planet Earth as well and for being interested in planet Earth. And the big major reason is this. And this is what various of various ET sources hint at or describe in quite great detail. And that is this that our planet was set up as a very special experiment. It's not an ordinary kind of world. 
And beings like us are not ordinary kinds of beings. As far as I understand it, there are no beings that live in such densely physical bodies as we do. There are no beings that live in such bodies on such a gravitationally strong planet as we do. One of the little bits of evidence for this is that most of the ET images you see are of spindly critters with very, very thin legs and arms. And this is basically because the gravitational fields they function in normally are just not as heavy as ours. We have to have honking great big muscles in order to hold ourselves up. We've got to have a very, very thick bony frame and and uh, spine in order to function on this on this planet. And as many of you will know, it's problems with that frame which create many of our greatest areas of pain. It's our teeth, it's our bones, our backs, you know, our hips, and these kinds of critical points, which are all to do with interacting with the gravitational field on planet Earth, and living in such a heavy body, which impacts hard whenever we bang up against things. And so, we live on a, <coughs> on a very unique kind of world. And this isn't just a, a, a little bit of self-advertising for ourselves or anything like that. It is, in, it is very much bound up into the meaning of our lives. And one of the core issues for humans like us has to do with learning how to live consciously within such dense planetary vehicles such as these in which we have to throw lots of physical food down our gullets in order to stay alive. We have all sorts of physical experiences. For example, in your dreams you might be able to lift your legs and float off somewhere, but basically, in reality, we've got to either walk, or in recent times we've been able to go in a car or uh, catch a plane. But even that, even though catching a plane is physically um, a relatively simple thing, although it's a bit arduous after 16 hours. Basically, we, have to, we, we pay the price in money instead, instead of physical energy. And so, we have a very, very exacting life here on Earth. And the most exacting thing of all is staying conscious while we're busy doing life. This is the biggest challenge of all. And every one of us here has personal experience of the difficulties involved. You know, about how when you come back from holiday you think to yourself, uh, from now on I'm just not going to drive as fast, I'm not going to get as wound up about things as I have done previously in my life. And three days later you're back into it. And there are experiences that you'll have in your life where Theoretically, you shouldn't worry about things, but actually, it really winds you up and really sends you skittering off to the side. Or even the fear of things happening, not actually things happening, but the fear of things happening can cause us to modify our behaviour tremendously. It can stop us from 
realizing aspects of our potential, uh, it can cause us to shout at people we love and to harm people. And, and nowadays in particular, where we've got ourselves into such a busy and complicated state, conscious people are now faced with the extreme problem of just handling all the different things we have to be aware of in order to be reasonably conscious. For example, walking around the supermarket and choosing the right kinds of products so that hopefully you're not exploiting people too much. Yeah, because it's this great shock that our, for example, our farmers' grants here, keeping our farmers in Somerset alive, are causing people to die in millions in Africa. Precisely those very same grants are doing it. And so, we as conscious beings, by participating in this, are actually, we're actually participating in crimes against humanity against our brothers and sisters, even if we might not want to. Eat a bar of chocolate and you are feeding a civil war in the Ivory Coast. Now, these kinds of awarenesses are very difficult to live with when you just want a bar of chocolate. And, and we, we drive along in our cars and we just forget that we are even just driving along in our cars. We're, we're actually polluting the the air, and it doesn't just disappear. So it's very, very difficult, this business of living on planet Earth, and particularly of living consciously. And of staying calm in all circumstances. Of, of staying tuned to our full range of possibilities in all circumstances. When we've just had a big bill come through the door, and when the car it won't start and it's raining and your 17 year old has just told you to get off somewhere and all that kind of thing. It's very difficult staying conscious, compassionate, understanding and clear. But yet this is actually the big item. This is the big task that we're here for. From an evolutionary viewpoint, God the, the creative force of the universe is trying to open up new possibilities which no one's really done before to this extent. It's a bit like going into the deepest jungle or something. It's, it's, it's to do with, in a sense, you see, we as souls, we all volunteered to come here. Sorry, no one's here by accident or anything like that. We all volunteered to come here and we, we were told at the time that it was going to be difficult. And we thought to ourselves, I'll handle it. It'll be all right. I'll remember who I am, where I came from, what this is all about. But then we had birth. Then we had growing up. Then we had school. Then we had TV. And earthly conditioning patterns can creep in and they set these patterns inside us which cause us to define ourselves in certain very quite narrow ways, you know. And in order to function in this rather rather low consciousness world, we have to, for example, we have to behave normally. 
So we appear to other people as if we are like them and within that frame of reference which says, okay, sane, registered, validated and you're allowed to drive a car and you're allowed to function in society. And of course, if we go outside those, there are risks. You might get sent to the psychiatric ward, you might be given antidepressants, you might start getting criticised by people for outrageous behaviour, all sorts of things like this. And so there are taboos which keep us within a certain quite narrow frame of reference. And there are pressures which we have to um, live by in order to function and keep paying the bills and keep people respecting us and all this kind of thing. No. And so by this means we, we create, we, we have a problem inside of ourselves in as much as we're only able to be fully conscious of those bits which are really functional on a Wednesday morning or at least within the context of Wimbledon or whatever it is. But as soon as you start behaving or or, um, functioning in a much more sensitive kind of way, you become vulnerable. And life can become difficult when mixing with, with other people. And yet, this process of seeking to be conscious while living in the world is, it's a bit like making stainless steel. It's a, it's a crucible experience. It burns. It, it's sharp. It hurts at times. It's also very rewarding at times. Very, very, a very wonderful thing to participate in. Give you an example. I, I've just had a, quite a wonderful experience of writing a book which was in effect a a six month process of shutting myself away and being completely focused and concentrated on what I was doing. Now if you were the Archangel Michael you wouldn't have that experience because they don't have books and they don't have to go about the lengthy task of writing them. What happens is basically if you were the Archangel Michael you'd just rattle off your thoughts bundle them up in in a hologram and shove them out somewhere and other people would get it as a hologram and they'd unfold it and it all comes out a bit like the contents of a CD. You know, so you wouldn't have to write a book, you could do it in a split second. You'd just say, recorder, just take everything from my psyche. Boom, got it. Alright, shove it down the line, everyone else can read it. So you wouldn't have that kind of worldly experience. You wouldn't have the worldly experience of walking along a country lane. You wouldn't have the worldly experience of utilising words in poetry. There's no Shakespeare's out there. Shakespeare is an utterly worldly item. It's to do with verbal words and this genius who played with these words and these concepts and strung them together in all sorts of ways which create what we call literature. And this is one of the wonderful, unique things we have on planet Earth. And I often say to people, you know, just remember, if you want to get off planet Earth and go back home, just remember that when you have gone back home, you'll suddenly think, tomato ketchup! And you'll want it again. And you'll think, gosh, that was... 
you can get those kinds of things on planet Earth. You don't get fake beans anywhere else in the universe apart from planet Earth. It, it sounds funny, but it, this is really for real, you know. And when, when you've gone back home, you'll remember tomato. Do you remember hot chocolate? And stuff like that. So, one of the things that pulled us here was the, was the opportunity to experience this kind of stuff. This really drawn out process of being alive. You know, where you even have to go and spend five minutes on the toilet every morning, you know. Angels don't have to do things like that, but there are virtues even to sitting on the toilet, which no one else in the universe will have. There are unique aspects to planet Earth experience, which is one of the reasons, that's our personal vested interest in being here. That's, that's one of the things we came for. But the predominant thing we came for was, we, we decided, I want the challenge to live in all that stuff and to try and stay conscious, to try and remember. Remember why I came. Remember where I came from and remember where I'm going to. And as you all know, very difficult. You can meditate for the whole of your life and you still lose it. You can, you can be in the most wonderful religion on planet Earth and you still, God still doesn't appear to you every day. And th this has quite profound cosmological implications. It's a bit like people from New York City or somewhere like that. An absolutely crazy place. It's like a planet of its own where the rules are just quite different from Somerset, for example. Or even London compared to Somerset. It's absolutely a different world. But the thing is that New Yorkers tend, by comparison to many other people, and especially when they got out of New York, they tend to be quite outstanding characters. By dint of the experience they have had on the streets of New York. We become something as a result of our experience. And particularly, it's tough experiences which really make the difference. They, you know, it's, it's, they're, they're the real ones that really turn down the screws and make sure we get it in some way. And living on planet Earth is a tough experience. It's a tough experience. The interesting thing is here that our challenge is essentially it's to build this thing we call heaven on earth. It's to, it's to create a reality both psychologically and spiritually inside ourselves and out there in the world. It's to create a reality which is so wonderful that we have overcome the, what you could call the hellish and the drudgerous aspects of living on planet Earth. When I was with the Council of Nine, for example, one of the, someone asked them a question, what will life be like after the world has transformed itself? You know, after the big change has happened. And they said, well, have you ever had a peak experience where you've really felt it's been a, an, an enlightening experience. I said, yes. I said, it'll be like that permanently. It's how boring. 
Well, there'll be other things. There'll be other things. Other things to do. There is no change. Yes, but... You've got to have downs to appreciate the others. Yes, but can you see, for example, how an African might regard the life we have in a country like Britain to be really boring? Because we have softened the edges, made life nicely padded, we've all got our insurance policies, we've got our own private property that we live on, and all this kind of thing. It's comparable to that, that kind of thing. And one of the remarkable things, when you look at a picture of Afghan refugees or something on the TV, one of the things that's quite outstanding about these people is you look at their eyes and there's something in them that's more alive than us. There's something they are experiencing which we actually, if truth be known, want. And strangely, it does get tied up with hardship. I was talking to my dad, who's in his late 80s uh, just recently, and I was asking him, what, looking back over your life, what is, was the most meaningful time of your life in retrospect? And he said, Second World War. I was, and I said, why? And he said, I was more alive during the Second World War than any other time in my life. Truth is, strange business. Here we come to the compensations in the universe again. The Second World War was an initiation in love. It was a spiritually, spiritually it was the most advanced time of the 20th century. Not the 1960s, the 1940s. It was also the first sexual revolution. There was a lot of love going on at that time. Why? Because people, a lot of people in countries like Britain realised, I might not be alive tomorrow, I might as well be alive now. And there's an element of despair to that, but there was an element also of livingness, of aliveness, of being right here. So there's something here where this hardship isn't necessarily a bad thing. It actually makes our lives more meaningful, at least in certain doses, and especially when we can perceive it that way. And so there's something here about this crucible experience about living on planet Earth, about going through all this stuff. Now, if you are an ET who doesn't have this precisely this kind of experience, you'll have other kinds of experience, which might be quite meaningful in its own right. But if you were an ET, you'd nevertheless be very interested to watch this business going on. Right old soap opera, actually. You know, all those, all those situations that these humans get into. And also, one of the other remarkable things about planet Earth is it has so many different kinds of environment in it in which to live your life. Just think, for example, if you, if you just think, say, of Shia Muslim people in southern Iraq. And people like that could be your friends. And yet, when you sat down and talked to someone like you, living in Basra, your lives would be very, very different, but you live on the same planet. And you've both got two legs and one nose. And you're both basically programmed with the same stuff. Sort of. You know, so the variety available to us on planet Earth, the variety of experience is quite great. 
And even though we are all white here and we are all a certain kind of person, the sum total of experience in this room is quite large. And if we got into a, a real sharing session about, you know, where we were digging up our own personal experience, you'd be amazed at the amount of experience just sitting in this room. You know, but the amount of variation of experience is quite enormous. And when you get close to people as well, you know that experience when you get close to people and you discover how very different that other person is from yourself. Actually, it can be quite a shock sometimes to discover how different we can be. And so, there's something very interesting there. We could have taken human history in quite a different way. It wasn't necessarily, it didn't have to be the case that we got into atom bombs, chemical fertilizers, baked beans, and 58 channels of TV. It didn't have to be that way. It could have been a whole load of other, other kind of forms of civilization that we've gone into instead. But we have gone into this, and there's a particular rub to this, which is that we've actually developed a civilization which is destroying itself. Which is pretty unique when you think about it. It's a pretty difficult thing to do. To actually threaten the continued existence of life on our planet. Quite difficult. And we've done it. Which is an amazing achievement, actually. We've been living in that state for about 50 to 60 years now. Where we could obliterate everything. This is pretty unique. And this generates a lot of interest. Of course. Especially, why haven't they done it yet? What is it that stops them from actually destroying themselves? And if they're not going to destroy themselves, how are they going to get out of this one? This is the biggest computer game you ever logged on to. Actually, it's a remarkable one where no one knows. Archbishop of Canterbury doesn't know. Dalai Lama doesn't know. I don't know what the outcome of this big global game is. It's actually a matter of faith. You know, each and every one of us at various times of our lives is tested on our faith and our belief that somehow, regardless of how things are now, it's going to work out. We're all tested on that one and it gets you at certain times of your life and it'll get you down to the bottom. Some of you have been there. The thing about this, therefore, is we're attracting a lot of attention because we're on a really dodgy game. And the thing is that it's not that they just feel sorry for us and that, well, if this lot blow themselves up, then that's six billion souls kind of down the tube. The problem is it would create an enormous problem throughout the universe. First of all, if six billion people disincarnated in half an hour, there's a hell of a refugee problem on the soul level. Not only that, but we, for example, in Britain, we have experienced young Kurds coming into, coming into a country like Britain, and they're kind of beating around expecting someone to shoot them tomorrow, and of course it's not going to happen. But it takes them however long it takes 
to detoxify from the, the horror they've been through and to get to understand that you're safe. It's okay. You'll, it'll be alright. And it would be similar on, uh, in the universe if planet Earth destroyed itself. There would be a problem in as much as nowhere else is as disturbed as this and therefore we would have a tremendously toxic effect on the rest of the universe. You know, it's a bit like a lot of traumatized Iraqis suddenly being, being pitched outside Melbourne port and left to get on with it. It would be quite a challenging thing. Not insurmountable, but quite challenging. There would be other things too. It's this experiment business. If you have worked for however many thousands of years with trying to get the planet Earth experiment to work right, and suddenly it all came to an end, what a waste of energy. It would be a real disappointment for the rest of the universe. Why? Because they're trying to hybridize a new kind of soul that's been to hell and back and knows how to do it. A bit like a reformed alcoholic or a reformed junkie or a reformed criminal. Been there, seen it, done that, formed some very positive values from it. In fact, if you take a cross-section of society, a lot of the most remarkable people in society are people who have been through big, life-changing traumas. They contracted cancer, they got busted and spent 15 years in jail, they had people dying around them, they had all sorts of, you know, whatever the trauma was. And there's something there which is enriching to human character when we, when we hit the bottom line, when we hit the, the, when we go into the pit. What is the biggest disease in our day? It's depression. The biggest global disease of our time is depression. And it's precisely what I've been talking about. Meaning of life. What are we here for? Does my life have any meaning at all? Am I an utter, abject, no good failure? So planet Earth is going through this stuff secretly to itself. And this is why there's so much interest going on today from an extraterrestrial viewpoint. It's not, you know, it's not that they pity us or anything, it's that actually it's important for them. Imagine if humanity got the message during the 21st century and if by the, by the year 2103 the world was a very, very different place and certainly safe to live in where humans can mutually support one another and trust one another imagine a world like that now, if you have souls graduating from a world like that whether it's by spaceship or by death the universe is enriched. It's enriched by people who've been through a crash course, a really deep and profound training, and they don't accept bullshit. They just know we can handle this. We're the heavy brigade. 
Actually, humans on planet Earth are the heavy brigade. The angels are just dying to see us graduate. Why? Because we can handle stuff they don't know how to handle. If the Archangel Michael, I think I've said this at the Wessex Research Group before, if the Archangel Michael incarnated on Earth, he'd be a chain-smoking alcoholic on benefits. Probably trapped up in jail. He wouldn't be able to handle the contradiction. Yeah. He'd be too vulnerable. He'd get himself into trouble. What we're being taught is how both to be tough and to be vulnerable. We're learning it gradually. The human race is progressing. It's progressed visibly in the last 50 years. Visibly. Human vulnerability is much greater now than it was, say, 50 years ago. Human insight has grown. We don't behave as if it has, but it has. Human understanding has grown. When, in the 1960s, when the information about pesticides, population explosion, and all those things were coming out, people genuinely could plead ignorance. Now, everybody knows. You don't even have to be literate to know that our climate is changing and that the human race is changing radically in fundamental ways at this time. And you just look at the seven-year-olds and the five-year-olds who are alive today and these guys are different guys from us. They're different. And if you look at them a little bit on the side of your eye, you'll notice those antennae sticking up. You'll notice those bright eyes. And so, what's going on here is that we are actually part of a very universally significant phenomenon. doesn't feel like it, and the BBC doesn't advertise it, or anything like that, but we're part of a very, very significant phenomenon. And this is why it's so important for us to get things right on planet Earth, and this is why we're also attracting attention. This is also one of the reasons why we can't stand the idea of that attention happening. This is why people just don't want to know about ETs. Because it reminds them about being their full 100% self. It's a challenge for us to stand up and to be to our fullest extent. It's a challenge to equalize with ETs. Now, during the 1990s, there was all the business about abductions, for example, and one of the interesting things that was fascinating about it was that it, it came out at roughly the same time as all of the issues around things like rape, violence, vulnerability, victimhood. It was all in the late, during the 80s and the 90s, all of those issues started coming up, you know, and it still comes out. You know, paedophilia is, is the, the thing for the last few years and we'll probably go move on to another one sometime soon. But these are all to do with this interaction of the vulnerable part of ourselves with the tough and heavy and difficult part of living on planet Earth. And we are challenged when we contemplate ETs, for example, or spiritual beings. We're challenged to rise to a similar kind of frequency to them. And it can be a very challenging thing. 
We're challenged to arise to a situation where we are not powerless in relation to them. Now people often ask, well, why don't the UFOs just land on the White House lawn? Why don't they just come down and declare themselves? Well, what would happen would be something not dissimilar to what happened to Iraqis when the Americans moved in. Chaos would break out. Because the known universe we lived in up to that moment would suddenly fall apart. And no one would really know what to do about it and there would be 50,000 answers and chaos. So, for example, everyone thinks Iraq, yes, well, Iraq should definitely become a democracy and, you know, this is the way it ought to go and we have liberated these people and all the rest of it. But the thing was, they didn't choose it or at least they didn't choose the timing. They weren't really prepared for it. And secondly, the liberation we give them might not necessarily be something they're either ready for or willing to receive. Similarly, the liberation we would be given if the archangels suddenly came down one day or if there were a mass UFO landing or something like that, that liberation would be quite difficult for a lot of us. For the majority of us. We wouldn't exactly know what to do. However, having said this, there's another side where we do know what to do. And the proof was when Princess Di died. Because this nation, with 60 million people in it, functioned pretty well while in an altered state after Princess Di's death. So we can handle some stuff very well, actually. But the danger is, that the problem is, that if ETs suddenly announced themselves tomorrow and said, right guys, it's over, the questions are over, we are here, we've come to sort you out, from now on it's all going to be different. If they came along and they did that, it would be a nightmare. Because what's necessary is, we really need to rise to them by our own choice. Really, the Iraqis needed to be able to say to the Americans and British, we're ready now for you to march in and give us freedom and democracy. They needed to be able to say that, really. They needed to prepare themselves. But they weren't able to because the dictator they lived under didn't allow them to. Similarly, we're in a situation at the moment where we're all running around, doing our lives, busy, 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 and we are, in a manner of speaking, not able to prepare ourselves for liberation. We do individually, people do individually do so. We, we all secretly do our yoga or our meditation or go and talk to the trees or whatever it is we do. But basically, as a mass of people, six billion of us, we're not, we're not doing it. We don't have the mechanisms in place whereby we do these kinds of things. And so there's a difficulty. There have actually been various times when there could have been landings on planet Earth. The major one, the major one really in our time frame was 1977, which was when there was, from various sources, there, there were signs that there was likely to be a mass landing 
and the ETs judged that humanity was getting close to the kind of state of mind where, at a stretch, we could incorporate the idea of ETs into our, into our lives. In fact, what happened was the reverse. It was called Reaganism and Thatcherism, which in a way, whether intentional or not, was a consciousness shutdown. As has been things like the war against terror, another wonderful consciousness shutdown. Good way of diverting people off the real issues that are going on in the world. And getting people to worry about terrible, horrible things rather than tuning in to the rustling of the leaves in the trees and the goodness in the heart of Chinese, African, Latin American people, Middle Easterners. And so, we do have a very, very critical problem at the moment. Very, very crucial issue. And that is that in respect of our free will, ETs can't really come down and sock it to us. They can't do it. They would blow, they would not achieve the intentions that they want. Now, you as parents will be able to relate to this. You might want to teach your children certain lessons, but if they don't want to know, you're not going to teach it to them. There's just no way you're going to get that message through to that 14-year-old about whatever it is, about the wisdom of coming home at half past ten, or whatever. Oh, man! It's rather similar, really. We're just as rebellious, just as thick-headed, just as determined as a bunch of 15-year-olds who just want to put anything we find down our throats, stay stay out all night, and do all manner of hanky-panky. They're all gathering in Glastonbury at the moment, 200,000 of them, to have fun. So we're very, very similar to this, and this is, this is therefore a very, very difficult thing, really. It requires a certain kind of juncture of circumstances which would tip us over a certain kind of threshold. I'm not going to go into this. This is actually the subject of a 350-page book which I've just written. But if you're interested, it's called Healing the Hurts of Nations, the Human Side of Globalization. And it, amongst other things, one of the main themes here is what will really make us decide to change? What is the critical juncture which would cause us to tip over that threshold and make us all look at each other and say okay game's up let's do it a different way that kind of thing is what we ourselves need to do amongst ourselves and people ask when will ETs show themselves to us the answer is once we've pulled that one off why because we will have raised ourselves up somewhat to a point where we're capable of meeting these people and squaring with them in the right kind of way so that we don't lose our power and go into chaos and get our 
our whole worldview totally mashed by the presence of what to us appear like superior beings. They aren't actually superior beings. It's just that we are so shut down, we're running on so such a small capacity of our full potential that we render ourselves into being inferior beings. You see what I mean? And so really, we have all this inside us. Actually, when all is said and done, we're really frightening people. We're really powerful people. Our emotions are really powerful. Our thoughts are really strong. Thoughts compared to compared to uh, beings of other worlds and dimensions. We're quite frightening beings. And in fact, people used to get terribly upset because they were getting uh, in the 1990s with the abductions because they were feeling themselves to be overwhelmed by them. As if they lost all their power. And, the, and these ETs were capable of just levitating them up or doing all sorts of things with them. Well, the thing was, it's simply to do with the human habit of giving away our power. And the main way we give away our power is through being afraid. It's the main way we do it. We shut down our systems as soon as we go into fear. And so, we render ourselves manipulable. When in fact, if you're up against an ET who's trying to overcome your, over, overpower your mind, if there are such beings, if they have some sort of perhaps aggressive intent, the best thing to do is just scream or laugh. You'll scare the hell out of them. They're not capable of that kind of thing. They're not, cap they, they're not capable of splitting their sides in the way that humans can. They're not capable of such abject fear and terror as humans can generate. That would make them run a mile. So if you ever do happen to meet an ET who you judge to be of hostile intent, the best thing is laugh out loud or scream and really feel it. They'll go. Why? Because your power is greater than them in that moment of intensity. However, Hostile beings, in my judgment and experience anyway, are very rare. And in fact, one of the bits of news that's, that's uh, around at the moment is things have changed a lot in the last few years. You might have heard lots of stories 10 to 15 years ago of all sorts of different kinds of beings flying around planet Earth, all sorts of different kinds of ETs, ufologists basically identified around 50 different kinds. Well, this is down to a very much smaller number now, and the critical point was 1997 to 2002. Basically, planet Earth was cleared. They were, many of them were given instructions, out. Stop complicating the matter. This business on planet Earth is so delicate, we cannot have anyone interfering, was basically what happened. And so the energy fields of planet Earth are now very much clearer than they were. Very much clearer. And that's why, one of the reasons why you're not hearing many stories at the moment about strange 
ET goings on, when in fact there were things going on in the 1990s. There are things going on, but they're not so much for public consumption. And there have been some wonderful things. Just a few months ago, for example, there was something, <coughs> what seems to be an intervention in terms of a meteor strike of, on planet Earth. And it seems that a meteor was basically on entry into the Earth's atmosphere, was, was basically deflected and kind of exploded. And this was witnessed in Turkey by about 12 airline pilots of a meteor which started entering the planet Earth and then started behaving very erratically and disappeared. And it was fully logged and photographed from various different angles and it was one of the more significant recent ET-related phenomena. So there are things going on, it's just you tend not to hear them very much. So, to wind up all this, in answer to the basic question that was posed in the title, and it is actually quite a serious matter, and it relates not only to ETs, it relates to babies. It relates to any kind of presence that is not a normal one. And that is, when you encounter such a presence, the first thing to do is be willing to change your state. The second one is say hello and acknowledge. The third one is tune into your intuitions or something inside you which knows the right thing to do. You'll get the rest. You'll know what to do. And then the fourth thing is, after it happens, be careful with yourself, respect yourself, treat yourself gently, be prepared to be on your own if necessary. In other words, not to be able to talk about it to other people very easily. And don't judge yourself. In other words, all this stuff of, am I crazy? Am I losing it? Don't judge yourself. Very, very important. In fact, it, that could be one of the most important elements, actually. And f finally, also, one of, the, one of the big things here is you will not fully understand the experience. You will not fully understand its significance or be able to explain it to someone else or, or even really understand it just privately to yourself. It is beyond that. And yet the paradox here is that there will be something in you which understands. Even if you can't say what it is. And this is one of the reasons why I was strongly recommending you, if you so choose that is, to go and visit a crop formation this year. Because the kinds of things that you can experience inside a crop formation are directly parallel. And I wouldn't say it's exactly an ET experience, but it is definitely an interdimensional experience. And of big spectrum interdimensional. Not just sort of the next few levels or anything, 
big stretching stuff. You will find your aura grows immensely. You will find your state of being changes immensely. And you'll also most probably find quite great relief in whatever area of life you need relieving in. You'll probably find it's you know, quite a remarkable experience. And that is, a, that is an opportunity to have a close encounter. It is an opportunity for such a thing. Now I'll leave that one with you as your own gift to yourself if you want to take it up. But it is, we are blessed by having these things close to us. They're not going to go on forever. They do happen in other parts of the world, but southern England is the best place. So how do you think they're formed? Well, if you want a short answer, they're pre-programmed and they're done by a form of, you could say, etheric or paranormal engineering, which has something to do with manipulating gravitational fields in a very, very specific way so that they can cause a stalk to fall down to a point one of a millimetre exact position. They're not printed from above, they're pulled from below by uh, an exceptionally precise localised gravitational field. Essentially, that, that's basically your answer. It takes about two to three seconds for a whole formation to form. Even a massive one like the Milk Hill one a couple of years ago, which had 600 and something circles in it, basically, no one saw it, but it probably took five seconds. Below. Essentially, yes. It's utilising the Earth's gravitational fields in a very, very specific way, down to the micromillimetre. Because when you go into a perfect crop formation, you'll notice that every stalk is combed exactly. There's no way these things could be put down by a human. No way. They're so exactly combed. If you see them from above, in the sunlight, the, the whole thing shines because all of the all of the wheat stalks are exactly parallel to one another, and they're laid down as if very, very exactly combed. It's quite quite a remarkable thing. Yeah, it's very, very precise gravitational fields which do it. Or at least I'm using the word gravitational, but you see, the thing is, I'm going to bust out of the laws of physics. All right, but basically, gravitation, electricity, light and all forms of energy are all totally related to one another. There are different frequency wavelengths in a continuous field of different kinds of energies. And so, really, you can affect gravity by light, for example. Or you can... Uh, thought and gravity can be connected. If anyone here is into mountaineering, for example, you can do this. It's perfectly simple. If you're climbing a high hill and your legs are all heavy and you're labouring up, the thing to do is change your state. Get your thoughts moving upwards to, into hopeful, positive, visionary thoughts and your legs will get stronger. Your relationship with the laws of gravity will change. That's why 
you feel heavy and ponderous and stuff when you're feeling about life. And when you're feeling inspired about life, you don't get tired in your legs. It's not, it's not just a psychological thing, it's your actual relationship with gravity. You can even do it on some bathroom scales if you really work at it. You can change your weight by a couple of ounces, at least. You could do it, but you've got to really get out of, out of your normal mental box. Like a ballet dance, Yes, yes, yes. It's to do with gravity and anti-gravity, or levity. The word levity is not only to do with uplift, physically, but it's also to do with humour, happiness. The same thing. Happiness is levitational. Yeah? It has a direct... The, and so, thought and gravity are related to one another, and that's why it is possible for beings who are half a bazillion light years away to create a very, very precise crop formation in a field in Alton Barnes in Wiltshire. That's how it's possible to do it. Because thought does not know distance. You see, these are, these are intelligent beings. These people talk. They talk to us. They read our thoughts and they give answers in the form of crop formations. There have been lots of instances of this. Lots. And one of the things they realised in the early days was they were giving us too many crop formations spread out too far. And they, they, it took them a couple of years, but they realised that crop circle researchers had no financial assistance. And they had to burn all this petrol going round trying to find these damn things. And so what they realised was, okay, if we cut down the number, increase the quality, and localise them in one area, we'll make it easier for our friends. And that's, that's basically the, the reason why they're really concentrated in... Well, it's what's called the Wessex Triangle, which is basically goes between the area around Avebury, Winchester, and up to Oxford. It's that triangle. But Avebury is the place to head for every time. Why did they choose that area? There are... No one fully knows, but some of it has to do with the underground water, chalk deposits, and ancient sites. There's a relationship with all of those things. There's something about chalk landscapes which attracts them. But I, no one can fully give that answer because you'd, you'd then ask, well, why don't they have them down in, on the chalk hills in Dorset or up on the Mendips or something like that? And I can't answer that question. There are lots of questions we can't answer about this. And in fact, that's one of the most remarkable things about being involved in crop formations is that if you want answers, get out. Don't, don't try just get out of the business. You'll go crazy. The only way you can survive in the crop circle business is by suspending your judgment and allowing things to be as they are and forget trying to find the big answers. But you keep saying they. You said they're not extraterrestrial. Yes. What do you mean by they? All I can say is uh, interdimensional intelligences of some sort. And one of the reasons why I feel happy that they are of the highest kind is that they don't give us their identity. And it's only beings that are really close to 
God who would do it that way. All the rest would say, I'm Lucifer, I'm so-and-so from the Galactic Command, I'm this, I'm from the Pleiades, or whatever. That these are beings that have no identity that it's good for us to know, but we can still recognize their characteristics. That is, they're very intelligent, quite humorous, they've got very advanced mathematics and architecture, they uh, can read our minds, uh, they have a lot of compassion, they're terribly good educators, very good educators. So there are, there are all sorts of qualities we can identify, but basically everyone who's been in the business for the last 15 years is no closer to knowing who they are now than we were then, except for one thing, and that is we've stopped trying to find out, which is actually the, probably the most healthy thing. And this goes back to Lao Tzu when he, say, he used to say, the Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. 